If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 8. The question that I want to begin with this morning is the simple question of what is next? Uh, What is next for our world? Will we just continue on uh, the way we have continued these last many millennia? Uh, with the rise and fall of nations, with the advance of mankind, with wars and rumors of wars, does life just continue on? Or will humankind end with some sort of cataclysmic disaster, maybe some nuclear annihilation, and maybe an asteroid collides with our planet and all life comes to an end? Or... Will Christianity just end up in the dustbin of history, uh, sort of like the worship of the pharaohs with the pyramids or the worship of uh, the Roman gods and mythology with the constellations? Or will Jesus Christ return and come and take his people and conquer the earth and judge sin? And then rule and reign over a newly created heaven and earth. What happens next? Well, the book of Revelation tells us the answer to that question. The book of Revelation gives us what we need to know to know what happens with this world. And so we're taking these weeks, a number of them, maybe a dozen or fewer, and we're just studying the book of Revelation. We're starting with Revelation chapter 1. We're going to work all the way to the very last chapter, 21, in the book of Revelation, if the Lord allows. And as we go through this, we will determine the answers to those questions. Hopefully, you'll be encouraged and you will be enlightened. We will learn some things. But more than all of that, through this study, we're going to find new reasons and greater reasons to worship Christ and to exalt him forever. As we've said over and over, the book of Revelation is a revelation both by and about Jesus Christ. And so most of what we will study as we go through this time, we will study uh, the glory and the greatness of Christ. So now, studying the book of Revelation is not an easy task. Uh, we're going to read some things that are very difficult. I, I think at times it would be easier to do maybe a, a topical series on just end time events. Uh, but to go through the book of Revelation and not skip anything and not get out of order uh, can be a difficult task. And I think that's why often uh, Christians will, will study every book of the Bible except the book of Revelation. And I think that's one of the reasons why often Uh, Preachers will preach every book of the Bible, but not preach through the book of Revelation. It is filled with so many symbols, uh, word pictures that, that stand for something else. And then at times I think we see just John, the human author here, we just see his very best effort at describing something that is too wonderful for him to understand or describe And then even with these descriptions that we read, there are oftentimes all kinds of different interpretations. Even people who are very godly and who are very very faithful to Scripture can come to different conclusions about these matters. Uh, 
It makes it a difficult book to study. It's a profitable book to study. We should study it. This is the truth of Scripture. This is good news in the end. But it can be a difficult book to study. And honestly, it takes a strong and a healthy church, uh, I think, to study the book of Revelation like we're doing. It takes a church that is humble and loving to be able to glean from the book of Revelation these important principles, these truths, without being uh, caught in the divisions that oftentimes come when people teach or preach the book of Revelation. So thank you for being that kind of church and letting us uh, focus on these chapters in these days. So I want us, before we go forward, I want to take a moment or two and go backwards. Uh, Just a quick review, Revelation 1 through 3, uh, we learned a little bit of the outline of the book. In fact, in Revelation 119, uh, John was instructed, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. John has this vision. Uh, John, a disciple of Christ, an apostle of Christ, he had been imprisoned because of his faith on the Isle of Patmos. And here he's given a vision uh, from the Lord of things that were, from our perspective, things that are and things that are still yet to be. And so it spoke of his time, and we see that especially in Revelation 2 and 3, and then it speaks of times yet to come. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we, we shifted over to chapter 4 and 5. We spent a Sunday there. And we learned in chapter 4 of the focus on God the Father. And there the living creature said that God is holy, holy, holy. And we learned what that meant. And then in chapter 5, the shift is to Jesus. And we see Jesus as the lamb who had been slaughtered, slaughtered for the sins, our sins, so that we could be made right with God. And then we saw that this slaughtered lamb who is Jesus, who is also the lion, is also the one who is worthy to open the scroll and execute the plan of God. And then that brought us to chapter 6 that we looked at last week. We said, just as an aside, that likely before we get to chapter 6, another event has happened that's described in other places in the Bible, an event that we call today the rapture. Now, we don't know exactly where this falls in the book of Revelation, but assuming it comes before chapter 6, verse 1, when we come to chapter 6, the Christians... All of those people who have put their faith and trust in Christ have been taken up in the air and they have been removed from the earth and they are with the Father in heaven. And then chapter 6 really begins the time of God pouring his wrath out upon the earth. Now, people are saved in chapter 6 and chapter 7 and following and, and people repent of their sins and some of those come to know Christ as their Savior. So they're Christians here upon the earth during that time, but many most are gone and, and the judgment of God against the world and against sin and against sinful man is just poured out upon the earth. And so we read of that judgment in chapter 6. It's a terrible judgment. And then chapter 7, a little bit of an interlude And we see in that chapter those that have been saved since the judgments have begun, gathered at the throne of Christ and worshiping there. And last week we focused a a great deal of attention on chapter 7 because we learned in the midst of the great tribulation, that's the Bible word for this difficult time, 
there were some important contradictions, and these contradictions reminded us of some great things about the Lord. Well, that brings us to Revelation chapter 8. Now, the tribulations that we have seen so far are about to get much, much worse. We're going to see God pour his wrath upon the world, the sinful world, upon those that have uh, uh, spurned their uh, nose at the Lord and the principles of God. And it's, um, I'll tell you, church, a very difficult passage to, to read, and it's a difficult passage uh, to preach on. Somebody might say, well, pastor, it's, it's not hard for me because I believe I'm going to be gone uh, when Revelation 8 and Revelation 9 happen. And you may very well be gone then and raptured into heaven, and I believe likely so if, uh, if you're a child of God. But still, this that we'll read about today is a human calamity uh, on a level that has never been imagined before. Nothing like this has happened in history. This will be a terrible, terrible time, a time of human suffering, a disturbing time, a sobering time. And so we're going to read through this. We're going to read much of uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. I'll spend uh, the majority of my time just reading this morning. I want you to be exposed to this. We don't have time to go uh, through and give commentary on every verse, but I think we'll get the gist of it as we go through here. We're going to see a lot of symbolism and As I think I said earlier, a lot of this is just John being shown something and describing it with the best words he has. In in fact, there are parts of this that some scholars believe is a description of modern warfare. But can you imagine how someone who lived in the first century would describe modern warfare? John had never seen an airplane, a, a jet, a helicopter. He had never seen a gun, a machine gun. He had never seen a missile. He had never even seen or heard of an explosion. And so if he would have seen something like that, and we can't be certain that's what God showed him, uh, but he would have uh, had to use uh, some very interesting descriptions to describe something that would have been so foreign to him. And, And we see some of that here. But let's just begin to read. Let's just begin to read. I want to start in chapter 8, verse 2. The Bible says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God, Seven trumpets were given to them. Now we finished the seven seals, uh, and each of these seals represented some judgment of God. The seventh seal now introduces us to seven trumpets that'll bring forth seven additional judgments of God. Verse 3 another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. And he was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up into the presence of God from the angel's hand. And the angel took the incense burner and filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it to the earth. And there were pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so we're going to come back to this incense and see something more of what it means But I think this is an announcement that the worst of the judgments, or at least the worst so far, these judgments are about to begin. Look at verse 7. It says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth, so that 
A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. And so fire, fire comes down. Fire like has never been seen before. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. And so a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And so some sort of calamity that now affects the sea and kills many of the creatures in the sea and destroys many of the ships. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water and the name of the star is Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people dried from the, uh, died rather from the waters because they had been made bitter. Uh, people have written now whole books trying to figure out what all of these symbols mean and uh, sometimes that's helpful. Oftentimes that's just wild speculation. Uh, I, I think it's uh, more the fact that God is bringing his judgment upon the earth and upon every part of the earth is the message that, that we need to hear. Verse 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened and a third of the day was without light and a third of the night And I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, whoa, 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 to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. And so here is this uh, great judgment that continues. You should know this, even where these things are symbols, they are no less true and they're no less horrible. These are terrible judgments. But he says here that the worst, uh, the worst is yet to come. And so let's, let's just continue reading. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from the heaven to earth, and the key for the shaft of the abyss was given to him. And he opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft and then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. And so the best we can understand if chapter 8 describes some not so natural disasters, chapter 9 perhaps describes uh, demonic disasters as things get uh, increasingly worse. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Now that's important because those people who are saved during this time are going to be protected from at least the initial uh, impact of God's judgment. And so these terrible judgments, this wrath that God pours out will affect directly only those people that are not children of God. Of course, when all of uh, the world is ripped apart and civilizations fall, that will affect every person, but, but the Christians are not directly affected by, by the wrath of God. And people would have noticed, people will notice, I should say, it'll be on the news These people are affected. These other people are not affected. The ones that are not affected are those that profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. People will notice. Verse 5 says, they were not permitted to kill them, 
but we're to torment them for five months. And their torments is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The suffering will be so great that people, their greatest wish will be to die. But God will not allow those people to escape his wrath. And they won't be able to die. They will continue to suffer. Look at verse 7. I told you this was a fun message. Did I mention that at the beginning? Verse 7, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their head and their faces were like human faces. And they had hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had chests like iron breastplates. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses, horses rushing into battle. And so some have suggested this is John describing modern warfare. and Very well could be. Verse 10, and they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come. And so things go from bad to worse to worse to worse to worse. And there's still, there's still more to come. Let's skip down a few verses. Uh, I want to pick up in verse 18. It says, a third of the human race was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the sulfur that came from their mouths. A third of the earth, approximately 8 billion people here right now, a third of the earth would be billions Verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails because their tails, which resemble snakes, have heads that inflict injury. And so whether this is uh, some special creature that God has uh, sent to the earth or this is um, uh, some sort of uh, modern warfare that uh, as the nations collide, the judgment of God is real and it's clear and it's terrible. What do you think? Let's stop here for a moment and ask the question, what would people do? What would you do if you find yourself at the end of verse 19, chapter 9, and the whole world is being ripped apart and people are dying, many of them, and many people are wanting to die and they can't die, and it seems like there is a worse uh, devastation every day on all except those people who had put their faith and trust in Christ. What would you do? Well, I think the very obvious thing to do would be to accept Christ as your Savior, right? To repent of your sins and turn to the one who offers forgiveness and who offers safety and protection from these great uh, judgments that he's pouring on the land. But what do they do? Look at the next two verses. Verse 20 says, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. It says these people, they didn't repent, and they continued to worship whatever they were worshiping, some false god, or maybe they were worshiping wealth or security or some earthly hope. It says it again in verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is the saddest 
saddest part of the story, these people who still had a chance, who had all of the information they needed, that had a very graphic illustration of the judgment of God, these people still chose not to repent, and they continued to suffer. Well, there's more suffering to come, chapters 10, 11, and so on, and we will, if the Lord allows, cover those chapters in the, in the weeks to come. But I want to stop here this morning and just go back and look at these two terrible chapters. Not terrible chapters, but chapters that describe terrible events. And see if we can learn some principles, see if we can learn some truths about our Lord and about life that God has created. And so there are several. Number one, God honors the prayers of his children. God honors the prayers of his children. You say, well, pastor, where, where do you see that? Well, if you go back to Revelation 8, beginning in verse 3, let me read what we just read. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar, and he was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. So I think this is a combination of symbolism and, and real things in heaven. Certainly it all is real in the sense that this is something that happens and it's something we can learn from. And so here he says that the incense, though this is some uh, pleasant smelling aroma that pleases the Lord, the incense is mixed with what? The prayers of the saints. My prayers, your prayers, mixed together, pleasing to the Lord. Look at verse 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up into the presence of God from the angel's hand. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this symbolism in the book of Revelation. We also saw it in chapter 5. I didn't stop and mention it there because I knew I would eventually be here and I wanted to save my, uh, my ammunition, so to speak. But let me read to you Revelation 5, 8. It says, each of the living creatures had golden bowls filled with incense which are the prayers of the saints. Now think about this. It says that God keeps our prayers in bowls. What does that mean? He keeps our prayers in bowls, and it is for the Lord a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, I don't know what that means. That is, uh, uh, you know, a symbolism that is beyond our full understanding but I know it means at least a couple of things. We may not be able to understand today the fullness of that picture, but let me tell you two things I know it means. Number one, it means that your prayers are valuable to God. God keeps them in bowls. They are a fragrant offering to the Lord. God cherishes your prayers. When you pray, that pleases God. It is like a gift to God. Listen, we're, we're coming up on Mother's Day. So how many of you moms have uh, some sort of something that your kids made for you 10 years ago or 20 years ago? You look at it today, you can't even remember what it was supposed to be. <laughs> but it's valuable to you because, because, it, because of who it came from. You couldn't sell it for a nickel, right? If you put it at a yard sale, it would be trashed. But it's valuable to you because of who made it. What God says that 
My prayers are so valuable to him. He holds on to them and he cherishes them. He keeps them in bowls. And it's a sweet smelling aroma. So that's the first thing I learned from this. The second thing is God will honor the prayers of those who suffer, those who are persecuted, and those who are mistreated. What we see here in Revelation chapter 8 is that God takes those prayers, he mixes them with fire somehow, and he pours them out on this wicked world. And it brings destruction, and it marks the beginning of great destruction and great tribulation. And, and these prayers become a part of God's response to the evil and the wickedness in the world. What does that teach us? Every time a believer through history has been persecuted and has prayed for the justice of God to be executed, every time a child has been mistreated and prayed for God's hand to bring righteous judgment, every time a person has been enslaved and mistreated and has prayed for God's attention, Every time a missionary has been executed, every time a martyr has been burned at the stake, every time a faithful witness has lost his or her job here in America, every time someone has cried out for vengeance to the Lord, God loves you and he has kept those prayers and there will be a day when he will pour that out mixed with fire and it will be the judgment and the wrath of God. Here's the lesson we learn. When you cry out in distress, maybe in times of being treated unfairly or in times of injustice, God hears, God cares, and and your pleas will not go unanswered. This is a picture of the fact that God listens and he remembers and he will execute judgment when the time comes. I heard someone say one time that sometimes the wheels of God's justice move in incredibly slowly, but they always grind incredibly fine. When you pray, when you are mistreated and you cry out for justice, God remembers and God will execute that judgment one day. The second thing I think we learn from these two chapters, these descriptions of this tribulation, is that God is good. God is good. You might say, Pastor, I don't see anything in those two chapters about the goodness of God. Well, let's look a little closer. Our world is filled with evil. You know that, don't you? There's evil all around. There are wicked people. There's sin. There's abuse. There's violence. And if God just turned his back on those things, if God just hid his face and God never did anything about any of that, then you could not say that God is a good God. But God will not turn his face. God will pour out his anger and his wrath. Imagine men, and this would be true of women, but I'm a man, so I I think about this in these terms. If somebody hurt one of my daughters, I have three beautiful daughters. If somebody hurt one of my daughters, if I found out that one of my daughters was being abused in some way or taken advantage of in some way, it would make me angry. 
I mean, it would make me so angry. I can't even imagine the anger that I would have. I would seethe with anger. And in a sense, that would be a proper anger. It would be a proper thing for me just to be torn up about the abuse that that might have been directed toward one of my daughters. I would want to do anything I could to protect my daughters. Well, you take my love for my daughters or your love for your daughters And you multiply that times many, many, many millions, and it doesn't compare to God's love for his children. And when God sees his children abused, and when God sees his children taken advantage of, and when God sees the wickedness of sin and how it affects his children, it angers God. Not because God is wicked, not because God is evil, but because God is good. Because God does love us. And so what we see here in the wrath of God is the love of God. That's what I want you to see. Don't come away from chapter 8 and chapter 9 saying, oh, God is is just a God of of wrath and, and a God of judgment. Well, God is a God of wrath because God first is a good God and a loving God. God is is love. The next thing I want you to see is God's Judgment is warranted. Uh, Don't ever think that God could have done more to get someone's attention. You can't think that after you read Revelation 8 and 9. I think often people think that if God would just let people see the full consequences of their sin, if God gave people just a little more information or a little more time that they would turn to him, But see, when we think that, we are underestimating the hold that sin has on people. We're underestimating just how sinful people really are. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have likewise become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. Not even one. Not even one. It's interesting that many scholars find a parallel between the destruction and the judgments in Revelation 8 and 9 with the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And and there are some correlations there. It's an interesting thing to study. We don't have time for it here, but it's a fascinating study. But I think the correlations go beyond just the judgments. Pharaoh, if you know the story, if you don't, it's okay, but, but Pharaoh had experience these plagues. And with each plague, your expectation as you read the account is that Pharaoh's going to repent and let God's people go. But with every plague, he just digs in deeper and digs in deeper. It makes you scratch your head. And finally, at the end, he does repent. But the very next day, he unrepents and goes right back. And you think, well, all of these terrible plagues, what's it going to take to get your attention, Pharaoh? Well, that's the point. Sin can be so ingrained in us that nothing can get our attention. God's judgment is warranted. The Pharaoh would not have repented had there been 11 plagues. And these people are not going to repent with one more trumpet. God's judgment is warranted. Sometimes people ask me as a pastor, as a student of the Bible, they'll say, why? This is a good question. Why is God's patience not as unlimited as God's grace? 
You know, the Bible teaches us, this, teaches us that the grace of God is unlimited. I think about Romans 5.20 where sin increases, grace increases more. There's not some sin you can commit that is so bad that it goes beyond the limits of God's grace. That, that the blood of Christ cannot bring forgiveness. God's grace is unlimited. But not God's patience. The Bible says this in a number of places. I think of 2 Peter 3. Listen to this. It's a long passage, but, but focus in. It says, the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come, come to repentance. God wants to see all people come to repentance. The next word is but. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens and earth will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved. And the earth and the works in it will also be dissolved. He says that it's God's desire that all people come. But, but there's a limit to his, to his patience. Why is God's patience not as unlimited as his grace? Well, let, let me just say something about that. I, I think in some way God's patience is unlimited. Now, hang with me here. God's patient, God is patient with us until there comes a time when more patience would be meaningless. There comes a time when we have said no to God so many times that, that it's not in us to ever respond to God positively again. And, and all the patience in the world would not make a difference in our lives because we have gone past. We have gone past a point. Now, the Bible does say, Proverbs 1, 28 and 29, other places, that there will be a time when people will call out upon God and he will not hear them. But I think what is the most common experience is that people find themselves so far into sin that they don't, that they don't respond. This passage shows us that God's judgment is never premature. At the end of chapter 9, these people will refuse Repentance. They will refuse grace, refuse forgiveness, refuse protection. And there will be no excuses and no arguments. When God's wrath continues, God's judgment is always warranted. Now, the very last, uh, last thing I want you to see here is that there will be no better time to respond to the Lord. Um, when I think of these people in chapter 9, my... I don't think, well, those are just sinners and they're getting what they deserve. Because I know that those people are no worse sinners than, than I am or than you are. But what I do think, what I do wonder is how did those people get to the place where they couldn't respond to God's grace when it was so obvious to them what the consequences of refusal would be. Now, I want to make a little bit of educated speculation here, but the only way I can imagine that people could ever come to the place where their heart is so hard, where they're so deluded that they refuse God's grace is that they've said the worst two words you can ever say to God. The worst two words a person could ever say to God. Not now. Not now. I know the Bible says that God will send a strong delusion, and he will. Uh, but I believe even that delusion begins with the words, not now. And when I read of these people in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, perhaps 
some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. These people that refused God's offer of salvation and forgiveness and protection. And I wonder how they got there. I believe it's because they just said too many times, not now. You see, when a person thinks that he can respond to the Lord later, he, he misunderstands the, the very nature of how, how our hearts work and how God works. Now listen to this. Any conviction, any inclination you have to respond to the Lord is not a product of your own goodness, your own intelligence, your own wisdom, your own common sense. It is God stirring in your heart. Let me read a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you have been saved by grace through faith And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. It doesn't originate with you. It originates with God stirring in your heart. I think about Philippians 1.6. It says, he who started a good work in you will finish it. Well, who started it? God started it. And so when when people make this assumption that I'm going to say no to God now and I'm going to say yes to God later, we've presumed upon the grace of God and we have presumed falsely. And I believe, and I'm speculating here, but I believe the only way a person could get to this delusion that we see in verses 20 and 21 where they clearly have been offered salvation and they, and they absolutely refuse against all logic, against all signs, is that they've said, not now, not now, not now, and the Lord stirs no longer in their hearts. I think there are some important lessons we learn in these two chapters of judgment and, and, and the wrath of God. And so what do we do when we read these chapters? I think we have to respond uh, in a few ways. And I close with this. Number one, we need to all choose to be thankful that God cherishes our prayers. That ought to just amaze us. That just as you have keepsakes, God has it a thousand times over. And God cherishes your prayers. We ought to praise the Lord for his goodness Even when his goodness is seen in his anger, it's sin. And we ought to embrace the opportunities the Lord has given us to respond to him today. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed, two things. There are some who will hear my voice today who are not children of God. You have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and said, listen, Father, I am a sinner and I am hopeless apart from what Christ has done, but I trust what he's done, and I believe it, and I surrender my life to you. Listen, if you've never done that, today is the day. Don't say not now, because that is the beginning of a story that ends like what we see here in this terrible passage. But there are many of us, listen, church, just so your head bowed and eyes closed, there are many of us We are children of God, no question. But God's still moving in our hearts to lead us to new things, to be faithful in greater ways, to surrender to him more completely and fully. Don't say, not now. But let's embrace this good and loving God 
while he's moving in our hearts. Father in heaven, I've dreaded preaching chapters 8 and 9. But I thank you for the testimony of your greatness and goodness that we find here. Help me to embrace that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together in both services.